Last week, as, we, as we're going to continue on in our series now, last week we were in Romans uh, 1, verse 18. And that one singular verse reads this, For the wrath of God, that was in contrast to the righteousness of God, for the wrath of God is revealed. Now we described it this way, that his, wrath is His angered response to and judgment upon those things which are intentionally in rebellion to His being and nature. We said it's a present dynamic that is at work. It's not like God's just going to wait till the end and He's just going to do the, the sheep and goats thing and yeah, then you'll know that God was, was at real and it works like, nope. Presently, God is pushing back against the resistance to the truth that He reveals. It's a, it's a dynamic at work, not just right now. So, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. You will remember that means they hold it down. They don't want to receive it. And now we'll understand a little bit more about that today because our text for today is verses 19 and 20. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them, for since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. I don't know if you ever think about it this way, but this two verses basically present for us what we might call a drop mic moment in the book of Romans. You know, I've, I've noticed the trend that happens where this, the, this little something comes in, it seems to make it into our culture, and then it passes on. A, a, a means of whereby we basically put somebody down. Whereby we basically tell them that don't want to hear anything more about this. And the first one that comes to my mind is back in the early 90s. And I don't know if Wayne's World popularized it or invented it. But some of you are chuckling. You may already know where I'm going with this. And let's say that it, in the way it came out into our common everyday use, let's say that there's a guy who uh, he's trying to be funny and he tells this joke to a crowd of people. It goes nowhere. And some guy will say from among the crowd, hey, hey, you're really funny. Not. And that's how the put down happened. But that was, you know, so early 90s. There was another one came out, and I know it was out during the time when the movie with Robin Williams' RV came out because he uses this in there. You remember this one? Talk to the hand because the face don't understand. <laughs> right? I don't want to talk to you anymore. I'm done talking to you. This is the end of the conversation. Somebody does that, and you're the loser. Where do you go with that now? You win. I mean, the person who does it wins. You're stuck. And the thing that I see most recently, I don't know if they're doing it anymore, if it's already run its course, but is the old, somebody will be making an, a point they think is important, something that they want to get across, and mo usually it involves confronting somebody else on something, and then they, if they're in front of a crowd, they may very well just drop mic. You don't drop mics, okay? But the wealthy people can. The people who are in front of crowds and they can afford it, they might actually drop a mic, and everybody goes, ooh. He really means it. It's really important. Right? But it's like, end the conversation. I have nothing more to say and I don't want to hear anything from you. It's a put down. It isn't like, hey, let's an invitation. Let's be engaged and talk about this. 
It's like, no, I've said what I need to say and you need to conform to what I've said. It's a put down. Well, this is a drop mic moment in the book of Romans. And you'll see why by the time we're done. Verse 19 tells us that God is making himself known. Because, this is why he's pouring out his wrath, because what may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has shown it to them. It is right now, presently. And I'm trying to touch on this thing of the dynamic that we see happening here again. There's this dynamic that right now we can know things of God. Because God has shown it to them. The way I would paraphrase this, and I don't do that very often, but what is knowable about God is being made manifest. What is knowable is being made manifest so it can be seen because God has manifested it. And these verses 19 and 20, they keep revolving around this, uh, this concept that God is making himself known. And that's why his wrath is going to be poured out. So you see, it is presently knowable because somewhere in the past God manifested it. And that past manifestation is still having a present effect. Let me give you a parallel passage in Scripture of something that happened in the past but is presently still telling us something. Hebrews 11.4 says this, By faith Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it, he being dead, I mean, it happened centuries ago from the time of the writer, he being dead still speaks. There's a dynamic that is taking place there that that event that was recorded for us back then is still saying something to us today. And Paul is saying with the creation God did this creation back then and it is still speaking to us today. It is still revealing to us to things to us today. And what he is saying is, as we move into verse 20, is that his creation is his calling card. It is that thing that says, I'm here. I am present. Here's my card. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead. This is what we can know, He is saying. This is what is inescapable if we are willing to receive it. The creation of the world, and that what is there is literally cosmos, announces His presence. It says to us, there's a God here. There's something behind this. Now, you know the scientists... They recently, within the last couple of years, they put together an image that let us get an idea as to what a black hole looks like. Now, they can't actually photograph a black hole. They did all sorts of things and working as a team in order to give us an image about, hey, we have this, this, this picture, if you will, of a black hole. But what's the problem with a black hole? The problem with a black hole is they are so, it is so dense, light doesn't escape from it. So how could they know that it's there if you can't see it? Well, think about that. They were convinced it was there. They were absolutely convinced. A thing called a black hole is present here. Not only that, there's more than one. There's many of them, and they come in different sizes. And yet you can't see it. 
Well, that seems a little weird. Now, but what, what could they see? They could see the effect of the black hole. They could see the magnetic pull on light. They could see its effect on other bodies in space. And they know something is there. Something is there that is impacting everything around it with an immense, because of its immense mass. And there it is. We know it's there. We don't know what it is. So they, for years, they're trying to understand it, give us an image of it. And it came out a couple of years ago and they all celebrated and uh, there it was. It wasn't an actual photograph because you can't just photograph it. But they were able to do things with imagery to give us a sense as to what is going on there. But it was evident enough to the scientific community they kept searching, they kept working. We know it's there. We can't see it, but we can see the effects of its presence. It's there. What can be seen was revealing what, what isn't seen. That's what Paul's saying. Paul is saying what can be seen in creation reveals what can't be seen about God. But it is revealing it nonetheless. His eternal power and Godhead. The vastness of his power to create and rule over his creation is what is evident by what we see around us. And I'd like, are we ready to do this? Can we make this work? I've got, I want to just give you a brief introduction. I, I, God, we could spend... In fact, if you ever want to, I'd be glad to sit down one-on-one -on -one with anybody who said, I'd love to look at these kind of videos one a week. I'd, I'd be the guy to sit with you because they're so fascinating. But the guy is Dr. Jason Lyle. He is an astrophysicist, which means he studies the stars. He's a believer. And there's a particular thing that's on YouTube. There's all sorts of things that are there. And it says, um, uh, title is, The Cosmos Proves the Bible, something close to that, okay? I, I don't have it memorized. Uh, but we're going to listen in a longer clip than normal. It's actually going to take about seven minutes because he's going through a sequence of things. I want you to see the whole sequence. Is that okay? Stuff you've seen before, but we're just going to re refresh ourselves with. The scale of the cosmos is as amazing as its beauty. So here's the moon, and let's compare it in size to the Earth. There you go. So you say, well, yeah, we got the, we got the long end of the stick on that one. Pretty big. Earth's pretty big. And it is until you compare it to something like Saturn. Saturn's nine Earths across. That's just the planet. The rings extend out even further into space. The rings are trillions of tiny little moonlets that orbit around Saturn. So you say, wow, Saturn's pretty amazing. It's pretty big, and it is, until you compare it to the sun. The sun is 100 Earths across, 100 Earths across. and it's basically a stable hydrogen bomb, a very efficient power source, fusing hydrogen into helium. That releases an enormous amount of energy. Sun gives off more energy in one second than a billion major cities could use in an entire year. And if that seems wasteful, you need to remember God has unlimited power. And of course, the sun is just one star. Yes, those little tiny pinpricks you see in the night sky, those are the same type of objects as the sun is. The sun is a star. It's a main sequence star. Main sequence means that it obeys a rule that if you know the mass of the star, you basically know everything else about it. You know how big it is how hot it is, how bright it is, the surface uh, uh, color, which is determined by temperature. And the sun obeys that rule, and most stars do, and then there are some that are unusual. They're a little bigger, like giants and supergiants. Um, main sequence stars that are less massive than the sun are smaller and redder. They're called the red dwarf stars, and they're very numerous. They're all over the universe, but you don't see them very easily because they're not very bright. They don't show up very well. 
Some of the stars that are more impressive, though, are quite a bit bigger than the sun, like Mintaka. This is one of the stars of Orion's belt that you see in the winter skies. And so, again, just, just keep in mind the, the scale of things. So we got the Earth. The Earth's one one-hundredth the width of the sun. You could line up 100 Earths across the sun. And this star, you can see, it's quite a bit bigger than the sun, isn't it? You could line up a number of suns across its surface. But there are stars bigger than Mintaka, like uh, Canopus, for example, which uh, you probably can't see that from Nebraska. You'd have to travel a little way south because it's, uh, it's close to the Earth's, uh, it's in the southern hemisphere sky. But you can see it's a white supergiant. Look how, look how tiny the sun is compared to Canopus. It's remarkable. And there are stars bigger than Canopus, like, for example, Antares. Yeah, pretty amazing. You could line up 600 suns across Antares. Amazing. And 100 suns, or 100 Earths across the suns. You multiply that out, and Antares is really big. Really big. And of course, there, there are things bigger than that, but that's about as big as stars get. But stars come in clusters sometimes. Some stars are kind of single, like the sun. Some come in binary pairs or triple pairs. And then some, you have these massive clusters of, there's probably 100,000 stars in that cluster. Isn't that beautiful? And by the way, you can see these in a backyard telescope. You just gotta know where to look. And, uh, and they're, they're all over the summer sky. It's really, uh, really quite stunning. It reminds me of the passage that we just uh, heard just a few minutes ago, that God calls them all by their names. God has a name for each one of those stars. Isn't that amazing? And, and we, can't even, we can't even count that many. We think there's maybe 100,000 there, but we can't, it's not like anybody sat and counted them. We just estimated it. So um, fun to look at, beautiful. Some of my favorite objects, though, in the universe are not stars at all. They're nebulae, uh, from the Latin meaning cloud. A nebula is a cloud, not of va water vapor like an Earth's atmosphere, but a cloud of hydrogen and helium gas. That's the same stuff stars are made of. They're made of hydrogen and helium gas. But their gra this, uh, the gravity of a star keeps it in a spherical shape, whereas the nebula is so spread out, the gravity is minuscule. And so if you have stars nearby, they'll heat up that gas and cause it to glow, and you get the most beautiful and vivid colors in some of these things. They're, they're wonderful to, uh, to photograph. You can see a lot of these with the small telescope, although the, you really can't bring out the color because at night you're using primarily your rods, which are not color sensitive. So it looks kind of like a grayscale version of that, but it's still beautiful. And so um, when you get those stars nearby, it'll heat up the gas, make it glow. Sometimes you'll, it'll reflect off the gas. You get a reflection nebula. Sometimes you get a star cluster and a nebula right next to each other. There's a star cluster down there. And so that's always a, a neat thing when that happens, when they're lined up that way. But the, the point is, this thing is huge, and to the point that our solar system wouldn't really show up on this image. It's that big. Some, some nebulae are enormous. Some are relatively small. They're only about the size of the solar system. It's about as small as they get. And, and these are called planetary nebulae. Some of them are round and look like an out-of-focus planet. And so you hear, here you have a planetary uh, a nebula. There's a star in the middle. In all planetary nebulae, there's a star in the middle. And it's um, ejecting gas. And sometimes they have kind of a two-lobe structure. We think the star is ejecting gas along the axis of the poles, the north and south pole of the star, because it's, it's spinning. And, uh, and so this is dynamic. It's not only artwork of God, it, it changes over time a little bit, over the centuries, as these, as these uh, gas clouds expand away from that central star. All kinds of planetary nebulae out there. Some of them are uh, bipolar, some of them are round. And it could be the ones that are round are also bipolar, but maybe we're looking right down the barrel. That's a possibility. We don't know because we can't get another angle on it. So there's still a lot of surprises left for us in the universe. One of my favorites is the Ring Nebula. And it does look kind of like a ring. 
And it's one of the first that I learned how to find. You can see this in a small backyard telescope not too far away from the Star Vega on a clear summer night. And it looks just like that, or rather a grayscale version of that. It, it looks like a little glowing smoke ring. And it's so strange because, you know, most places you point a telescope, you see stars and stars and stars, and they're beautiful. But they're stars. There's one little magic spot where you will see a glowing smoke ring. And it's so strange to see this little cosmic Cheerio suspended on nothing there in space, just uh, hanging there. You're expecting it to expand like smoke does on the Earth. And of course, it is expanding. It's just enormous. And so you don't notice the expansion, uh, you know, unless over, over maybe centuries you would. So there's a, the little stars in the middle. The stars collapsed in on itself. It's a white dwarf now. It's no longer fusing hydrogen. So all of these structures that we've looked at, these, these planets and stars and nebulae and star clusters are part of a much larger structure which we call a galaxy. And so a galaxy looks something like that. And so we live in a structure something like that about two-thirds of the way out. Uh, our galaxy is similar to this in that it's spiral, disc-shaped, and we live in between a couple of the spiral arms there. Uh, stunningly beautiful. So what you're seeing here is a collection of about 100 billion stars so many that it's hard to pick out any individual star. And it wasn't until the uh, 20th century that people realized what these were. We could see them even in the 1700s. You could see these structures, but they thought maybe they were nebulae, clouds of gas, because they couldn't see individual stars. And then finally, in the uh, early 20th century, the technology had developed to the point where we could see individual stars for the first time in these, in these galaxies, and that proved that they are, in fact, very far away, much farther than we had realized, and, and suddenly we realized the universe is much bigger than we previously thought. Because there's not just one galaxy out there, there are billions, hundreds of billions, in fact. There are all kinds of galaxies, galaxies of tremendous beauty. There are galaxies of tremendous ugliness. Hundreds of billions of galaxies. Galaxies with 100 billion stars in them. How do you count that? How do you count that? And this is what Paul is saying. This is what speaks to us about who God is. His eternal power and Godhead. The vastness of His power to create are seen in that. Some people like to say that God wrote, and you've heard this before, God wrote two books, is how they put this. One is the book of nature. That's what we see. We can look around us and we can just see. And we can look in the vastness of space or we could get right down to looking to cellular structures and how they are put together. And they are far more intricate than you would begin to imagine wherever you look. Okay, that's God's book of nature. We call that general revelation. Everybody can see it. It's available to anyone. You look at it every single day of your life. And it speaks of God's magnificent creative power. The second thing, the second book, if you will, is the Word of God, our Bibles. That's the second book. This we call special revelation. General revelation, everybody can see it. Special revelation, it's been localized. And you can see it, but you've got to look at it. You've got to go find it. You've got to be interested in it. You have to pay attention to it. And under the context of special revelation, we have uh, right, the written word, we, got, we have that, but there's a second category of special revelation, and that is Jesus Christ himself. 
who also reveal to us who the Father is. And so we have the written Word and the incarnate Word, their special revelation. What Paul is talking about is the general revelation. The reason I followed that discussion as far as I can through to the special revelation of Jesus Christ is if you will recall, in his day, some believed, some did not. Some believed, some did not. Same revelation that everybody who was there having access to see, some believed, some did not. So people may very well reject, even though God is making it clear. God has it out there, obviously, whether by general revelation, as Paul speaks here, special revelation of His Word, that's a whole discussion in itself, or the special revelation of the arrival of Jesus Christ, the incarnate Word, the written Word, the incarnate Word. God's making these things known. Some people not going to care. That's where God is pushing with His wrath. At, uh, at Trout Lake, uh, Dave Stanell kind of chuckled as he told us his story about Shooter when he was young. And, and pray for them. They'll be returning this weekend. I believe it's this weekend uh, from Thailand. And then I've got to get back to life here. But um, he would say this about when, when, when Nathan was small and he's sitting in his high chair, he would, uh, mom would serve up some food. All right, and he'd say, not that much. And so you're thinking, you gave me too much. But what Dave said, they eventually realized, not that much meant that's not enough yet. Not that much. I want more much. Okay? It's kind of opposite of what you think, but that's how he was communicating at the time. I need more. I want more. And you know, there are people, that's what they're saying. God has revealed Himself. And they'll say, not that much. I need more. That's not enough. You have to show me more. A guy by the name of, uh, I think it was Aldous Huxley. These are two brothers, famous atheists in the 18, early, late 1800s, early 1900s. And he was confronted by somebody or asked by somebody, well, you're clearly an atheist and you're promoting atheism. And so what happens if the day comes? What happens if the day comes when you stand before God? You find out you're wrong. You stand before God and he says, why didn't you believe in me? And his very cute answer was, I will simply ask him, why did you make it so hard to find you? Hmm. See that? You're the problem. You didn't give me enough. Not that much. Like I gave you my entire creation. Not that much. I need more. I need more than that. And here's what is important for us to understand. God accepts no excuse for missing it. No excuse. That's what he says at the end of verse 20, after Paul describing how he has made all things you know, available. And he says, For the, since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead. I mean, we just looked at how magnificent His power is there. So that they are without excuse. Drop mic. This is what we need to understand. The weightiness of that phrase right there. So that they are without 
excuse. They're without an apology even. The word is, we're familiar with it. If you do a little studying beyond just reading the Bible, you've heard of of an area of study called apologetics. Apologetics, it comes from a word, which in the Greek literally is apologia, from which we get apology. But apologetics is not apologizing for the faith. It is something else. So let me just kind of, if you can, if you'll give me a moment. Oh no, I'm not going to take that kind of time right now. I'm not going to take that moment. Apologetics is a defense of the faith. You follow me? It just means to defend the faith. Be ready to defend the faith. Why you believe what you believe. For the hope that is in you, Peter says. Very famous, well-known verse. And there's an entire field of study in that realm. And what we just saw would, would, would fall into that realm of, hey, guess what? <laughs> the cosmos proves the Bible is true. What we just saw was an apologetic, if you will. It was a defense. But what this word here that Paul uses when he says they're without excuse, it's literally, they are in a place. Here's the place they're in. The place they're in is they have no having no apologetic, no defense, none. They have nothing that they can say. That's what their position has brought them to. It's moved them to this spot, no excuse. Boom, end of story, drop mic. And what I think, it's, the reason I wanted to go into the word a little bit of, of apologetic is there isn't even going to be an apology that God's going to receive. Let's just transliterate the word. Well, will God let them to apologize as his, as his wrath comes, is he going to, is he going to say to them, they're, they're going to say, oh God, I'm so sorry that I didn't believe in you. I'm so sorry that I didn't receive your truth. I'm so sorry that I suppressed your truth. I feel so badly, he's going to say, not happening. You have no excuse. I will receive no excuse for what you have done. I won't even receive your apology if they try and go there. We're used to people making excuses. We're, we have seen some whoppers in the last couple of days. We were driving, and I pointed out to Lori as, a, as um, there was somebody playing something on the radio about, about Biden, and he was taking this approach. The buck stops here. And he said it like three or four times. The buck stops here. The buck. Man, you are the man. You are really taking responsibility for it. Dude. And, and effectively, what he wound up saying as he went through that, I followed what, uh, what my um, informants were telling me. I followed the information. The buck stops here. I made the decision and they gave me the wrong information. That's effectively what he was saying. Oh, the buck stops here. No, you just pushed it off onto other people. While you claim it stops here, you just made that little bit of an excuse. In 2020, June of 2020, Governor Whitmer Whitmer of Michigan, she said this, you don't need all the money going to police departments. So yeah, the spirit of defunding the police, that spirit, she says, I do support that spirit. That was in June of 2020. Now notice this. I'm, this is what she said this month. I'm proposing dollars to hire more police officers and ensure they got great pay, good training, and better resources to do their jobs effectively. We need more cops in communities, in communities experiencing a rise in gun violence that's been associated with this pandemic. <laughs> I say, what? 
You are trying to excuse. You've been one of that cadre of people who are out there claiming the police are bad. The police are the problem, and you're trying to excuse. Now when you see, guess what? When you eliminate the police, when you put down the police, when you say that the, the police are the bad guys, there are systemic problems. there, And there every any place you go, things can be improved. Nobody is arguing that. But when you are saying, they are the problem, and then a rise in crime comes, and you try and pass it off on the pandemic. And there's a whole lot of people who are too smart enough to go, not buying it any more than I'm buying Biden's excuse that he's passing it off onto those who gave him bad intelligence. We're not buying it. And what happens when we hear that? I don't know what you're like in your home, but I'm yelling at things. Right? If I had a brick, my TV would have been broken a thousand times because I can see the lies that they're bringing the excuses that they're bringing. And if it's just little me getting angry that you're trying to pull that over on me, imagine the creator God of the universe when he has revealed all of this about himself and people say, oh, well, I, I, I couldn't see it. it. It wasn't enough, not that much. We needed more. Something else had to be there. Friends, this is serious stuff. And we play with it a little too lightly. Sixth grade trip a number of years ago. Only, only one time did we ever go to this place. Uh, up on Summit Avenue in St. Paul, where the wealthy people live, across, across from uh, James J. Hill, the empire builder. Uh, there's a home. That, and I can't at this point remember what, how significant this person was, whether he was the mayor, whether he was the governor. I don't recall which. But anyways, it was the home of an important person. It's now a historical site, and they, you get to tour through it. And what they pointed out to us is when they were receiving guests, you come in this door, and then right off here, it wasn't a big room, but right over here, there's a room, and I would say it was probably 10 by 10, 12 by 12, something like that. Maybe the size of my office is all that it was. Um, and what they pointed out was, this, they said, now look around this room you will see that the, that the wallpaper is some type of special wallpaper. The gold, the ceiling, I think, might have been done in a gold leaf. And if you look around at the stuff on the shelves, there will be things from where they traveled, uh, conversation pieces from where they traveled, expensive conversation pieces. And they said this was all to let the person know. They come to the door, they get let in, they step into this room, uh, they wait there for somebody to come and uh, uh, shuffle them to the person they want to see. Now understand, they can't see the person that they want to see. Right? They, don't, they don't know they're there. They, they, they're told they're somewhere back there, but they can't see them. But the point, and here's what they said, the point of this room was to impress upon them how significant this person is that they, whose house they just stepped into. You follow me? How impressive they are. How powerful, how wealthy, how significant that they are to understand when they come in and they're waiting to see them in this little room, you're about to see someone significant, somebody important. You ought to behave properly relative to that. That was the point of that room. Now just, if you think of that little room, to give this impression about somebody they can't see, and now just think it in these terms. God's little room 
that he has given us to wait in until that day when we will see him as they minister to us today with that magnificent song. God's waiting room is the cosmos. And he has given it to us for us to understand while we wait. Oh, he's pretty incredible. We're in his waiting room, people. We're in that place that he has created in order to give us an impression of who he is. And there are people who will look around. I don't see it. I don't get it. And dismiss him. You know, humility is a necessity to knowing God. To be able to receive what he is speaking to us and making known to us when he created the worlds centuries ago and they still speak of God's presence. He's there. We're going to see him. You can't see him right now like you can't see the governor right now. But he's there. And he is holding us accountable for knowing who he is, at least as much based upon what he has revealed. He will allow no apology, no excuse for those who suppress his truth. Say, well, there's nothing to see here, none whatsoever. As Paul says, for they are without excuse. They're standing in a place. There's nothing they can say to defend themselves when God's wrath is pressed up against them. My friends, very serious. I, I, I don't think I've read this with the seriousness that is there for, through the years until preparing for this. But it is a very serious thing that Paul is communicating that we cannot we cannot dismiss the presence of God and think somehow it's a light decision. His wrath presently is pushing back against that. And I need to tell you, friends, if you haven't yet come to that place of bending the knee to the Creator God of the universe, acknowledging your need for a Savior in Jesus Christ, as the Holy Spirit of God is impressing that upon you, please understand that you are standing in a place that you are not going to be able to come up with some cute answer to get out of. He's not going to hear you wailing and, and weeping. Say, oh God, I'm so sorry that I didn't. No, that's going to be past that opportunity when His wrath comes. It's going to be past. And He will not allow any excuse for dismissing Him. Can I ask you to seriously consider, have you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ? He is the one God is revealing in the gospel. If the answer to that is, I'm not sure, <laughs> I don't know, or I absolutely not, and I don't intend to, please understand the seriousness of what God is saying here. You will stand before him without excuse. And that's a horrible place to be. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you, your word is so clear on this issue. That your wrath is presently pressing against those who are presently rejecting you. 
And graciously you wait and you call and you summon us to your presence, Lord. But I pray that nobody will leave here today without a sense of the seriousness of that dismissal of the revelation that you are giving through your creation. That it has eternal implications, Father. And if there is anyone here who has yet not bowed the knee to you by believing in Jesus Christ as their only hope, I pray today is the day that they will say, Lord, I need what you're doing. I can't, I can't bear your wrath. I need the grace of your righteousness that's found in Jesus Christ. And I ask you to bring that upon me now. So Lord, may nobody leave here today without this decision being sealed, I ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.